Thank you for tuning in to the Suffolk University Law School Office of Admissions on iTunes U. This is Gail Ellis, Dean of Admissions at Suffolk Law School. This morning, I'd like to introduce Professor Carter Bishop, who's going to be speaking with you this morning about the foreclosure crisis, how it started, and how it affected our economy. Professor Bishop teaches contracts, federal and state taxation, international business transactions, and business organizations and corporations here at Suffolk Law School. He's written extensively on these subjects. If you'd like to see his bio, you can click on to our website under full-time faculty. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ian Mankini. I'm from the Office of Admissions here at Suffolk Law School, and I'm joined today by Professor Carter Bishop, who is going to be talking with me about the foreclosure crisis and how it began and its effects in the U.S. economy and also abroad. So, Professor Bishop, thank you for joining us today. Would you mind talking about how you feel that the foreclosure crisis began? Thank you, Ian. First of all, let's separate the issues. The effect of the foreclosure crisis on debt instruments and their marketability in financial markets, which really ties back to source of funding and credit liquidity in the end, that's sort of one piece of it. Who owns the mortgages and what they've invested in and that sort of stuff. And then, of course, the other piece of it is the impact on individual homeowners who wind up defaulting on their mortgages and then there might be a foreclosure to follow. So let's talk about the individual whose home is being foreclosed first. Defaulting mortgages trace back ultimately to lending practices with regard to homeowners. And the current crisis began in part because of lending standards that were changed by political will over a period of uh, 10 to 15 years. This is not something that happened overnight. used to be that the practice in lending for home mortgages was sort of a plain vanilla mortgage, 30 years, fixed rate interest, and you made a 20% down payment and you had an appraisal of the house. And then you stayed in your home for quite some time before you sold or transferred the mortgages. The early source of mortgages was an organization called Fannie Mae, which was started by FDR after the Depression because traditional lending standards were not providing the flow of mortgage capital to the market. And so homeowners were not able to get loans and buy homes, and he saw home ownership was a critical aspect of recovering out of the Depression. And so mortgage loans were made available by Fannie Mae, and essentially Fannie Mae uh, borrowed money from the government and then made loans to other banks that then made loans to the individual homeowners on uh, application criteria that were dictated by Fannie Mae, sort of the conservative 20% down 30-year mortgage fixed along those lines. And there was a very stable market developed as a consequence. As time marched on, organizations like Fannie Mae have a constant source of mortgage assets is to, once they've lent all these funds to local banks who have loaned, the local banks run out of money. They need more money to make more mortgages. They get it from Fannie Mae, who buys their mortgages. Fannie Mae doesn't have any more money to buy mortgages that have been made by the local banks. So for Fannie Mae to get more money, it has to replenish its capital source. And that's really the market impact of this transaction. Fannie Mae, as do Wall Street and other organizations today, engage in some called asset securitization. They will take a pool of mortgages that share similar characteristics. They will wrap them together in a asset security, and then interest in that security will be sold to investors, not only in the United States now, but globally. Then the homeowners make their payments into a trust, and the trust then makes the payments to the purchasers of the security. And it all depends, of course, upon the sanctity and how good the mortgage was in the first place. 
As it turns out, over time, the political will was to broaden home ownership at every level of society. That meant fundamentally, because saving is so difficult to do in the United States and our percentage of savings is low because our percentage of consuming is high, lending standards had to be relaxed from 20% down to 10% down to sometimes 5% down. And even then, that didn't always work. What we saw were lending standards that changed radically to accommodate the lower income needs of a broader segment of society to own a home, all worthwhile social purposes. The question then became what would happen with many of these loans in the economy that was going strong is that people would sell or refinance their mortgage or the home if they got into difficulty on the mortgage. So their escape from default and foreclosure was to sell the home. And since homes were appreciating at a phenomenal rate, fueled by this liquidity that was into the system for mortgages for anybody, foreclosures were very low, real estate transfers were very high, everybody was getting into the home market, which stimulated demand and stimulated, therefore, supply in terms of building, and prices continued to rise. So I don't think that people that were taking out loans that wouldn't ordinarily take out a loan of that nature if they thought they were going to be in the house for 30 years felt that the real estate market was going to go up and if all else failed they just simply sell the house. Well, what happened? What happened is I think that these loans became a little bit more problematic when Wall Street became involved in addition to former agencies like Fannie Mae and then Freddie Mac. When Wall Street became involved it decided that it could generate different categories and styles of mortgages that were stylized and accustomed to the market. And those stylizations really extended the risk attached to the mortgage-backed securities. The investor market overseas and the United States in these asset-based securities at some time thought that they had government backing for those mortgages because they were linked or tied through Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. But the truth is the government never really backed those mortgages for a variety of different legal purposes. So when Wall Street began to spend new financial mortgages with 0% down, no payments for a year began, uh, buying a house was like buying carpet. You could generate almost whatever the market would provide. You could find a niche for the kind of mortgage that you needed for your cash flow. And then these mortgages traditionally had resets within one, two, three years where payments would then bump up. They would be off a, a low starter stream and they, the interest rate would jump up as well. So when the reset dates came on a lot of these mortgages after three, four, and five years, it became apparent that the people that were in them couldn't hit the remake targets. So they began putting their houses on the market. The flood of homes on the market decreased sales and also decreased the opportunity for people that were in these homes to get out of the home and satisfy the mortgager through the sale. And so they began to default. And as they began to default, banks began to foreclose. And as banks began to foreclose, blocks and blocks and blocks of property, particularly in low-income and moderate-income areas, began to go in the market. The excess supply just kept driving prices down. So the problem actually exacerbated itself over time. What is the financial incentive to somebody, either an investor in the United States or abroad, to invest in a mortgage-backed security? Safety in the marketplace, as with other financial instruments, it's all a question of risk and return. If the asset-based debt security is paying a nice return, 8%, 9%, or sometimes they were sold on the basis of these reset 
interest rates, which would then kick in and generate very high interest rates, assuming those things and the interest rates are paid, the, the actual debt return in terms of interest, it can be quite attractive to investors. So they're just seeking more return. Now they're accepting more risk, they understand that, but on the other hand, they didn't expect the kind of catastrophic defaults and foreclosures that we saw. Because now those securities are almost valueless. Is that accurate to say? It's valueless in the sense it is very difficult to resell and remarket a security unless somebody can value the asset which backs it. It's an asset-based security. So if you want to buy a house, you can't determine what the house is worth because there is no active market for the home. It deflates the home to the point in its price where it's, it literally has no market. The sellers are saying, I'm better off just to hold it than I am to get, just give it away because I can recapture more of that as it is restructured and turns around. If I could ask you one more question sure. on this, if I could. When Dean Amon and I we did a podcast on the domestic face of globalization, we mm -hmm. talked a lot about neoliberalism and economics. Do you feel as we've hit a point both in the United States and globally that we're going to get away from that deregulatory nature of the financial markets and, and uh, housing markets to a point where that might no longer be an applicable philosophy? I think that's going to be the case because policy, whether it's economic policy or social policy, is in first part dictated by stable economics. It's sort of like the social psychology and philosophy that we all understand we're at a dangerous intersection. So somebody makes a mistake, pulls through the intersection, is hit by oncoming traffic, and there's a death, and people say, well, the only solution for this is a traffic light to help people regulate the traffic through that intersection. Sometimes, as you know, one death and one accident won't do it. It takes two, three, four, and then all of a sudden people say, well, this is really a serious problem. It takes sometimes catastrophic events, either in economic terms or in human toll, before political will is moved in Washington, D.C., because it reflects or mirrors the attitude of people. And when people get frightened or concerned, then they react to that, and then policies change. good example is the oil embargo of the 70s and 80s, when the Mideast War was raging. Oil price at that time went skyrocketing. OPEC basically cut supply to the United States and to many Western organizations uh, that were supporting Israel. As a result, um, during the Carter administration, gas lines were, you know, blocks long, people waiting to get a gallon of gas because there were shortages and, of course, price was going through the roof. Well, there was enormous political, and our dependence on foreign oil at that time was somewhere around 20, 30 percent, and I'm not exactly sure what the numbers are, but low compared today where it's triple that. Why and what happened? Well, from that crisis, the political will, because that affects every American, virtually. Every American demanded some kind of action out of their politicians, and there was tremendous political will to correct the problem. Well, as soon as the supply turns back on and the price more or less stabilizes, the political will goes away and it evaporates, and so what you have is whatever the market dictates again. Market intervention and regulation occurs to fix a problem when there's political will, and there's political will right now to fix this problem. Yeah. So we're going to see changes, and eventually things will restore to a more or less stable base, then we'll see a swing back the other way, because there aren't the concerns that justify a regulatory intervention anymore. Well, Professor Bishop, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this Office of Admission podcast. Thank you, as always, for your interest in Suffolk University Law School.